when I was at Notting Hill Carnival at a jungle sound system. And I was at a friend's flat looking down on one of the streets, packed with bodies. I think the DJ dropped a particular track. I can't remember what it was, but from above, it looked like the response to this track, you couldn't tell if it was a kind of dancing that was going on or some kind of mini riot that was going on. It looked like a fluid of particles suddenly becoming turbulent, suddenly like a vortex emerged in this kind of channel of particles that was a street full of, of people. And that image always struck me and that ambivalence between not knowing whether people are dancing and having the most enjoyable experience or fighting and having a horrific experience. You can really tell from a distance and that ambiguity I always find interesting. Welcome back to season two of Tomorrow is the Problem, a podcast from ICA Miami's Art and Research Center. Each season, we approach urgent issues of our time by unearthing the hidden meanings behind everyday phenomena and ask how they might help us build a more liberated future. I'm your host, Donna Honarpiche. Last season, we looked to the ocean as a way of knowing. This season, we will explore the various ways in which sound shapes our experience of the world through art, music, protest, and violence. We'll ask, how does our perception of sound change when listening isn't limited to our sense of hearing, but traverses a range of mediums and contexts? We'll think about how sound shapes us and what is felt when we listen with more than our ears, but also our eyes, our souls, and our whole bodies. Later this season, we'll discuss the many sounds of our home city of Miami, jazz as a critical way of being in the world, and listening as an ethical practice. But first, on today's episode, we're examining the multiple vibrational registers of sound as a source of pleasure and power, as well as a force onto itself. When we hear the word sound, we tend to think of music or speech. But sound is much more than an art form or a means of communication. Sound is a physical phenomenon, one that exists beyond and outside of our human-centered perspectives. Sound creates an atmosphere that produces feeling. In the context of dancing in a club, this can be an immersive and intoxicating experience. It can mobilize bodies in ways that are generative and create community, while in other contexts it can be a means of ordering bodies through a call for protest or structures of militancy. And in another context, sound can be a technology of warfare, producing fear or even a means of torture. This episode introduces the listener to the dynamic registers of sound and develops the ambiguities it carries. Rather than thinking of certain sounds as good or bad, the artist and writer Steve Goodman, who DJs under the moniker Code 9, creates work that goes beyond this axis and considers sound as a force that can evoke and inspire a range of feelings and affective responses across pleasure and fear. Steve, who we heard at the top of the show, talked to us about the way sound is felt through sensory registers beyond the listening ear. We don't just hear through our ears, but we hear with our whole body. So the whole body becomes an eardrum. The skin becomes an extension of the, the inner ear membrane. So instead of me making sound for you to listen to, it's more like touching at a distance. 
because sound moves through our bodies. It's a very tactile phenomenon. The title of Steve's book, Sonic Warfare, came from a 1996 video essay about black electronic music and Afrofuturism in Detroit called The Angel of History. The film, which is by John Acomfra and the Black Audio Collective, combines documentary-style interviews and archival footage with a fictionalized narrative about a time-traveling data thief. Now, flash forward 200 years into the future. Next figure, another hoodlum, another bad boy scavenger poet figure. He's called a data thief. The phrase sonic warfare comes up in discussion of a real-life musical collective called Underground Resistance. They had a very kind of militarized stance, a very politicized stance, almost like the public enemy of techno. And that phrase stuck with me. So that's where the, the actual words come from. What Steve draws our attention to is that as much as sound can be a vibrational force that draws us onto the dance floor and moves our bodies to pulsate to the sound of music, there are other vibrational registers that can be experienced as militant, ordering people's movement in the form of protest, in the organized sounds of marching bands, or even the way the military itself deploys sound in its tactics of war, producing what Steve calls an ecology of fear. This is the sonic ambiguity that motivates Steve's work and gives him the framework to approach the rolling crowd at Notting Hill Carnival. So I, I kind of see there being a continuum of deployments of intense sound. At one end of the spectrum is military and police deployments, and at the other end of the spectrum is kind of music and sound art and noise art and so on. And somewhere in the middle is... is Kind of sonic branding, advertising, jingles, sonic logos. In other words, the use of sound and music to kind of change our consumption behavior, to induce contexts that are more likely for us to spend money or behave in certain ways. But while the sounds may serve very different coercive purposes, aesthetically speaking, they are closer than they first appear. I suppose the more and more I thought about this spectrum or continuum of sonic deployments, the more I realized that it's kind of more of a circle. Sonically, the difference between a, an extreme noise artist and what the military or police might want to use is very small. It's more like a, a loop at one side. You have aestheticized sonic intensity, and that can easily flip over or become appropriated as weaponized sonic intensity. But before we delve into the idea of weaponized sound, let's take a moment to break down what's actually going on when you hear something with the help of Jill Lins. My name is Jill Lins and I'm a senior instructor in physics at Skidmore College in upstate New York. And I work, what I like to say is at the intersection between quantum mechanics and music theory. Jill's area of study is called music synthesis, and she reminded us that what we experience as sound is, from a scientific perspective, a form of motion. Sound is the general umbrella of the motion of particles 
So in the psychology or psychoacoustics camp, sound does not exist until it enters into your ear. But from a physics perspective, sound occurs whenever you have the motion of particles, whether they be air particles or atoms within a solid, and then we put energy into it and make them vibrate. So sound is just the vibration of atoms, molecules, particles. Those vibrations move adjacent particles, which move more particles, and so on, until they form a sound wave that eventually makes its way to our ears. I'm here in Miami using a microphone which takes my voice and turns it into electrical signals known as waves. Then my voice joins all the other audio, the voices of our guests and the music you hear in a set of instructions called an audiophile. Your phone or computer, however you're tuning in, replicates the code of my voice, its vibrations and frequencies, which feeds my voice into your ears. Steve brought us into the somatic experience of listening to sound. He called our attention to how we experience vibrations and waves outside of the sonic realm through its unseen resonances. I was thinking about sound as a kind of, or militarized sound or sound as a weapon, as a kind of toxic air conditioning unit or a bad smell leaking into a space. In other words, a mode of thinking about sound which is more to do with atmosphere and mood. Another parallel I I like to make when I was thinking about the book is, what is an earthquake? You know, an earthquake is basically kind of tectonic vibration. So thinking about our relationship to intense sound as a parallel to plate tectonics and earthquakes, If you've ever been in a club with a lot of bass, you'll have seen, often you see objects slide across a surface because it's vibrating so much. So I suppose part of what I've been interested in doing is listening and audition out of our normal ways of relating to and putting in them in these slightly unusual comparisons and sound as earthquake, sound as air conditioning, sound as perfume, toxic perfume, sound as immersion. While our bodies might be able to experience vibrations like earthquakes or a throbbing bass in a club, our ears, which Jill very charmingly refers to as detectors, are only sensitized to experience certain kinds of vibrations. We've evolved to perceive frequencies between 20 hertz to 20,000 hertz as sound. Waveforms are by far the most common visual representation of sound. You've probably seen them before, maybe on your music streaming app or in a high school math class. If you look at these waveforms and you understand that what makes up a sound, any sound, are these harmonics that appear. Mathematically, it is like a cosine wave. So you guys learned about that. You know, everybody learns about it in in school at some point. And it's like, I'm never going to use this. But it is so fundamental to all of the sounds ever produced. So certainly the easiest way to get a better understanding is to use more senses to get there, right? Some sounds, Jill points out, though, we can see, but we can't hear. So if you get used to looking at graphical representations of sound and you learn there are patterns that appear within those sounds that we can see visually, 
And so anything that we talk about we're hearing is because it is within the confines of that 20 to 20,000 hertz range. So if I look at a signal coming from space and it has a frequency on average of 200,000 hertz, which is way, way above what we could hear. If I look at that waveform and I zoom in on that waveform and I see patterns within that and those patterns will be the same. So an octave at 200,000 hertz graphically is going to look exactly the same as an octave in the 300 hertz range where we're used to hearing things. But Jill's primary interest is actually the inverse. She wanted to know, how do you represent something auditorily that we typically only interact with visually, or better yet, conceptually? With this question in mind, Jill partnered with a group of musicians called Ensemble Connect to create an acoustical rendering of the periodic table of elements. They call it Atom Tunes. And so what I did was as I took atomic spectra, so if you, you know, every atom has its own unique spectral lines. These spectral lines are basically streaks of electromagnetic radiation, the byproduct of what happens when an atom's electronics move and it goes from a higher energy state to a lower energy state. And this is something you usually see in like science class and in school, but we identify what those elements are. There's a lot of close correlation between the theory of how these lines are produced by the atoms and the theory of how we produce complex sounds, musical or noisy. And so I just took the two ideas, because that's both of my backgrounds, right? I just took the two ideas and I said, let's make a mapping and translate the spectral lines into audible tones. And so we have uh, all kinds of different tones that we've created with that. So that one was hydrogen that I just played. Then we have helium. I'm going to go to a higher order one. Some of them are like really pleasant to hear. Here's aluminum. I really like aluminum. It has a much higher pitch to it. And then you have something like oxygen, which is very clunky and noisy sounding. And what's interesting is that is kind of falling out of this study is that elements that tend to create most of our molecules, so oxygen and carbon and nitrogen, those kinds of things that we deal with all the time, tend to have a noisier sound. They have more harmonics to them than something like aluminum, which we tend to think of by itself, or neon, which is a noble gas, so that doesn't necessarily combine with other elements. And so the way that these different elements show up, you can really hear. Sodium is one that's really cool. It kind of has this little sound to it. That's my best representation of that. (laughs) Jill told us that anyone can learn to attune themselves to the harmonics of the universe. All it takes is a little practice. I like to listen to a noisy situation and break it apart into what I'm hearing. I have family down in in South Florida, and one summer I was down there, and I was out on the back patio, and I just happened to be there by myself. And it was in the middle of summer, which if you've ever been in South Florida in the middle of summer, it is like 
500 degrees and well, I'm exaggerating, but it was, you know, it's very hot and very humid. And I'm sitting back there and it seemed like there was a buzz of noise, right? And so when you're first listening to it, it was just this buzz of noise surrounding and it was loud. And I sat there and I was, I'm listening and I'm going, what is that sound? And all of a sudden I could make the distinction is there's frogs, there's crickets, there's, I don't know if it was birds, but it was like all these different insects and animals and stuff at night that were making sounds. And if you stop and you listen carefully and you break it up and you say, what am I hearing within that noise? And then you can start to pull out different sounds. And that's what really kind of fascinates me. Because if I hear something that is very noisy all over the place and I stop and I listen, I oh yeah, I can hear. Now that we have a better grasp of what sound is exactly and how it touches us, we can return to Steve's work on how it can be weaponized. So it's the idea of sound as a weapon, not just a tool of propaganda or sound as a sound as language, sound as meaning delivered through words, but also sound literally as a vibrational force that moves bodies, changes the way they feel, regardless of what they think about the meaning of what's going on. You know, it's often atmospheric, change the mood of a place, change the atmosphere of a place, or literally force people to move because the sound is painful. We asked Steve... What is sonic warfare in practice? How is it deployed? It has a long history. It's a history which is surrounded by conspiracy theory and disinformation, as does anything with some relationship to the military. So there's a lot of deceiving hearsay and urban myth. Take, for example, Havana Syndrome, the mysterious affliction that first appeared in Cuba in 2016 and has now affected hundreds of CIA officers and U.S. State Department officials around the world, from China and Russia to some of the United States' closest allies, such as Australia and France. Havana Syndrome patients have reported an unusual mix of ear pains, vertigo, and nausea, among other symptoms. Some describe feeling as though they have been hit by an invisible blast or a wave of pressure. The list of theories is long and includes various types of sound waves as the culprit, from ionizing radiation and chemical and biological agents to infrasound, audible sound, and ultrasound propagated over large distances. Even the U.S. government can agree about these anomalous health incidents. In January 2022, the CIA released a report stating that the vast majority of cases could be explained by previously undiagnosed medical conditions or stress, and that there was no indication that Havana Syndrome was what the report called a sustained global campaign by a hostile foreign power. Just a few weeks later, a different report from a separate team of technical and medical experts hired by the broader U.S. intelligence apparatus concluded that while it was true that most cases of Havana syndrome could be attributed to known medical issues, the subset of cases that couldn't be explained by ordinary medical ailments could plausibly be explained by pulsed electromagnetic energy. 
Although they could not rule out ultrasonic beams, they determined that the more likely source was microwave energy because it is more easily concealed, low-powered, and able to penetrate walls. But while Havana syndrome remains enigmatic, plenty of governments openly use sound as a weapon and a means to control its own people. But there's there's concrete examples. Um, probably most commonly referred to is the long-range acoustic device or the LRAD, which has been used repeatedly in protest situations over the last decade or so. And these are devices which are highly directional loudspeakers, which allow a voice to be transmitted in a in a straight line, almost like a laser. So usually sound spreads out from its source, whereas these LRADs are very focused beams of sound. So they can be directed from police or military trucks to communicate. But there's also a switch on the back, which allows the device to be turned into a, a kind of alarm tone and at volumes which are unbearable. LRADs, also known as sound cannons, were developed by the U.S. military, but police departments around the country can relatively easily acquire them under a federal program known as 1033, which allows law enforcement and other municipal agencies to apply for access to surplus military equipment and is responsible for militarizing the police force. LRADs have been used against protesters at Standing Rock and during the massive anti-racist demonstrations in the wake of George Floyd's murder, including Portland, Oregon, Colorado Springs, San Jose, and Fort Lauderdale. So that can be used not just to communicate with a crowd, but literally almost like a sonic equivalent of a water cannon to literally target a group of people and for their own safety and their own the integrity of their hearing they just have to get out of the way or cover their ears or defend themselves from acoustic pain and that that switching from communication to sonic force is something that i found particularly interesting sonic force can take many forms and fear is a sound instigated you know if you think about the experience of war for a lot of civilians for example you're in a bomb shelter underneath a building or you're hiding somewhere so your only experience of what is going on outside is booms explosion you know the sound of explosions the sound of bombs dropping and so on so the the acoustic experience of the battlefield is often our only experience of a war situation likewise sound can be used as a threat as effective as a bomb in spreading terror and controlling a population. When aircraft fly over the speed of sound, they produce a sonic boom. So you would get low-flying aircraft flying very fast over the Gaza Strip. There's no explosion as such, but you have almost like a virtual explosion. You have the sound of an explosion. So everyone is like running for fear that a bomb is about to be dropped on them, but there's no bomb. So it's purely a weapon of fear. And it creates an atmosphere, or what I call an ecology of fear, which becomes autonomous from the need to actually have actual bombs, weapons, and so on. On a smaller, more individual scale, sonic warfare can be deployed as a form of torture, as it was at Guantanamo Bay. Which brings us back to the continuum of sound Steve introduced us to earlier, 
and our pain and pleasure sit close to one another. Exactly the experience that you might have in a nightclub. Dark, strobing lights, very loud sound and music, repetitive rhythms. Everything that we might want to experience in a nightclub was exactly what was used to torture inmates at Guantanamo Bay. And obviously the key difference there is they didn't choose to be in these positions. We choose to go into a nightclub to subject ourselves to this kind of sonically dominant situation. So it draws attention to how important context is, how important agency is in your response to whether you're being affectively modulated or controlled or whether you're being affectively mobilized and empowered. That these are issues of context that the sound or the music itself doesn't necessarily dictate the effects. Steve's own music doesn't shy away from this ambiguity either. There's also certain things that I gravitate towards in the music that I play or make and, you know, a certain kind of dissonance, a certain curdling between sweet and sour sounds, what some people would call noise. It's my own specific relationship to that in music is the way the sweet and the sour can combine into something that you're you're not sure if you're enjoying it or it's making you feel ill, but it's somewhere in, in the middle there. I do have a soft spot for that. There's someone who's not musically trained. Part of me is drawn towards things that are off music that is off tune because I'm my my mode of listening hasn't been regimented by classical musical notation or the stave or tuned instruments or things being in tune or off key. I've got a much more intuitive sense of that. So I think that allows me to have a slightly more positive relationship to things that sound awful to some people. Steve's work considers sound's violent applications, but sound can also be an equally powerful source of healing. Sound medicine is something that's been happening for thousands of years. If you think about it, every continent has different types of sound as as medicine. Uh, If you think about uh, the Tibetan throat singing that happens in, in Asia, that is a form of sound medicine to the drumming in Africa and to the shamans and flutes of Latin America and, and so on. Sound artist and healer Guadalupe Maravilla creates art installations that submerge participants in waves of healing sound. Sound as medicine is nothing new. I'm just technically using these modern gongs uh, as, as a form of medicine, among many other things. So sound, it has a lot of uh, variation, and I'm using a lot of different tools right now to produce sound as medicine. At the ICA Miami, he created the installation Portals, which feature gongs transformed into healing devices. Guadalupe came to the medium of gongs through his own experience with the healing qualities of sound. Well, everything that I do revolves around my biography, my life story, my lived experience. I am a cancer survivor. I'm also part of the first wave of undocumented children to come to the U.S. in the 1980s. And it is all related to 
to my lived experience. So basically when I had cancer, I came across sound therapy and, and gongs in particular. When I was doing radiation treatments, I was experiencing my first sound bath and it really helped me get through that, through that time. So I didn't choose the gongs, the gongs chose me. Guadalupe's first experience with a sound bath was during his battle against colon cancer when he happened upon a sound healer. Sound became an integral part of his holistic approach to healing from cancer, in addition to radiation and other alternative medicine practices. Well, I was just first coming out of radiation treatments. I think I was like number, it was like 20-something radiation treatments in, in 24 days. And my body was completely burnt and I was having a hard time walking. And when I laid down for the sound bath and I felt the vibrations, I, I started feeling something happening. After the sound bath, I was able to stand up and still was struggling, I was, but I was able to get up and, and I just felt different. I can tell you safely that, you know, our bodies are 60 to 70% water. And in the water that we carry, we carry mm. stress, we carry trauma, and sometimes all types of anxieties we carry in the water. And the vibration of the gongs or any other sound as medicine can release these toxins. So you automatically feel better. For me, I was going through radiation treatment. So the water in my body was highly affected by the radiation uh, being in my body. So it really just helped me just get through that time. Guadalupe explained to us that his practice is about much more than simple frequencies. Now, as sound healers, it's really important that we have intention before we go play. All the sound healers that work with me are, are healers in their own right, in different ways. Before every sound bath, we sit and we meditate and we talk about the intention of that particular sound bath. So when we're playing the gongs, we're not just hitting the gong with a mallet or whatever instrument we're playing. We're actually sending intentions as we're playing. We're meditating as we're playing. For Guadalupe, his work opens the gongs as portals for healing by enabling and channeling sound with intention. Guadalupe's work stands in stark contrast to the nefarious qualities of sound, which Steve illuminated for us. Sound acts as a force that transcends the human register, that can be used for pleasure and communication, as well as a means of control. Sound isn't always what we hear, but how we hear it and even what vibrates under the surface of our audible capacities. The sonic landscapes we encounter are created by various forms of power, harmful and at times torturous, but also of pleasure, protest, and healing. So we'll leave you with this, and hope that it brings you into the experience of sound in a totally new way. In our next episode, we make you a Miami mixtape showcasing the sonic world of the city we call home. Tomorrow is the Problem is produced in partnership with Podfly Productions. This episode was produced and written by Isabel Lee and me, Donna Honarpiche, and edited by Francis Harlow. Our showrunner is Jocelyn Aram. Nina Pollock is our sound designer and mixing engineer. Special thanks to all of our guests, Steve Goodman, Jill Lenz, and Guadalupe Maravilla for letting us use their work to score the episode. 
Thanks also goes to the Black Audio Collective for the clip from The Data Thief. And thank you as well to Bruno Hunger and Gregor Huber for letting us use their song Junk as our theme. I'm Donna Honarpiche. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 